street, you're in authority on this world. Now, the obvious question that arises as we come to the last page of a book such as this is, what do I do with all this information? What's the value of it? Do I use it to go out and impress people? You can do that. You can go out and ask people, uh, now when it comes to prophecy, are you a neo-dispensational, quasi-Arminian, anti-millennial, post-Diluvian, pre-tribulationist? Or, you you can do that. Or you can use the information to kind of get in heated debates with people about the specific chronology of events and the significance of the number four and uh, the third form and how it coincides with the fifth toe the left foot of the statue of Daniel. You can get into all those debates with this information or, you know, you can kind of use this information to speculate and formulate and postulate uh, all kinds of uh, ideas about every world figure who rises on the scene. We can do that with this information. But the question is, what, what do I do with this information? What's the value of it? Well, the answer to that question lies in the closing verses of this great book. And in Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21 we have the epilogue or the conclusion, the wrap-up of the book of Revelation. And in these verses, God calls us to respond to the prophetic message we have just heard. And we can divide these last verses into three parts. The injunctions, the incentives, and the invitations. The injunctions, what we are to do. The incentives, why we are to do it, and the invitations when we are to do it. First of all, the injunctions. We see those in verses 6 to 11. We have three injunctions or three commands contained in these verses that sum up our proper response to this book. The first is to obey, and that's in verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. We are to heed. That word means to keep, to obey. That's our proper response to the message that we've heard in the book of Revelation. We're to obey it. Now I want you to notice something about these words. Notice verse 7. It says, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. This is prophecy. What we have gone through in the book of Revelation is prophetic. Now I know some supposed Bible teachers who say that this is history. This is not history. Verse 7 calls it prophecy. Verse 6 says, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. These are future events that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you go back to the very first verse of the book of Revelation, we're told this very same thing. Back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, 
It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Revelation 1.1 says, what I'm going to tell you is prophecy. Now when we get to the end of the book, Revelation 22.6 says, what I just told you is prophecy. And so the book, the, the major portion of Revelation is prophetic. We know that about it. But we know a second thing about these words in the book of Revelation, and that is that they are true. Look at chapter 22 and verse 6. These words are faithful and true. This is not a fairy tale. This is not John's opinion. This is not a forgery. These words are faithful and true. And just to add some weight to that, notice in verse 6, it's interesting to me, the title given to God. He is called the God of the spirits of the prophets. That reminds us that he's the same God who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. The same God who spoke in Old Testament times through his prophets is the same one who has spoken in the New Testament through John to communicate this prophetic message to us. And it's just as if God is saying, if you want to attest to the faithfulness and the truth of this book, just go back to the Old Testament prophets and see what I did there and check out my... You know, God said in the Old Testament that Adam and Eve would die. They did. He said that the earth would be destroyed with a flood. It was. He said that Tyre would fall. It did. He said that Jerusalem would fall. It did. He said that Messiah would come. He did. He said that Messiah would be born of a virgin. He was. He said that he would be born in Bethlehem. He was. He said that Messiah would be put to death. He was. He said that Messiah would be raised from the dead. He was. And now when we come to the New Testament, to Revelation, he says, judgment will come. And it will. He says that Antichrist will come. He will. He says that Armageddon will come. It will. He says that Messiah will come again. He will. He says that a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem are to come. It is. And just as faithful and true as the prophecies in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled are the prophecies in this book of Revelation. We were talking in the earlier meeting. It was very interesting about the, 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 the activities of Christ on the cross. And it's very detailed in the book of John to say... Everything that he did was to fulfill, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Every detail of the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Christ. And the same is true of Revelation. Everything we read about the future is going to be fulfilled in its detail. And so the same God who spoke through the prophets is the one who speaks here through John. And what he says is faithful and it is true. And so our response to this is that we are to obey. You say, well, how do you obey prophecy? I mean, when you go through Revelation, I mean, a lot of it is, well, the first seal and the second seal and the third. And you're reading about all this judgment and you get to the end and he says, now obey it. Well, how do you obey prophecy? Well, let me give you an idea. Keep your finger here in Revelation 22 and go back to Matthew chapter 24. Because the idea in... Obeying prophecy is to live your life in the light of what is to come. 
It's to obey or it's to believe what God says about tomorrow and then act like you believe it today. That's the idea of obeying prophecy. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, the disciples came to Jesus on, Mount of, on the Mount of Olives and asked him about what is to come. Tell us about your second coming. Tell us about the end of the age. And you can read in Matthew chapter 24 many of the details that parallel what we've read in the book of Revelation. And when Jesus comes down through this, he comes to verse 42, and notice what he says. Therefore, having told you all these details about what is to come, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. What's our response? Be alert. Verse 44. For this reason, you be ready to, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. What's our response? We're to be alert. We're to be ready for what he, what he promised. And then you come to Matthew chapter 25, and he tells the story about the ten virgins. Five were foolish and five were wise. Five were not ready and five were ready. And he gets to the conclusion of that little account in verse 13. He says, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. How do we be obedient to prophecy? He tells us what the future is and the obedient heart is ready, prepared, alert for what is to come. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. <clears throat> Here's another expression of how to be obedient to prophecy. 1 Peter 1, 13, mark it. Therefore, gird your minds for actions... For action, keep sober in spirit. Here it is. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a great statement. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a Christian, I'm to have my, my hope totally and completely fixed on Jesus Christ. And when he returns, that's the grace I'm waiting for and hoping for. Nothing else. I don't have my hope fixed on anything around me in this world. Everything is fixed on Jesus Christ and his promise that he's coming back. That's how I'm obedient to prophecy. And then turn over one other verse, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. And here Peter describes the destruction of the earth by fire. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 3, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since this is going to happen, I've told you it's going to happen, this earth will be destroyed with fire, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Our response to prophecy when we find out what the future holds is it ought to affect me today. It ought to bring holiness into my life and obedience to the Lord in the context I'm in today. Recently, we had the experience of a uh, novice prophet telling us that there was going to be an earthquake in our area. Um, now, that prophecy was given. Uh, the dates were given. Everything was laid out. It was our choice whether we were going to believe and be obedient to that prophecy or not. Um, on the date of the supposed earthquake, uh, Red Williams gave me tickets to the basketball game. Uh, it wasn't because he didn't want to go because of the earthquake. He had already given to me, to me long before. 
But uh, on the supposed date of that prophecy, when the earthquake was supposed to, to come, I was there with my whole family in the Show Me Center. Okay, now obviously, along with several other thousand people, we didn't believe the prophecy. Because if we had really believed the prophecy, we wouldn't be in such a structure as that on the occasion of an earthquake. And so our actions displayed whether we really had faith or not in that prophecy. And that's true of us as Christians. If we really believe the words of Revelation, it's going to have an impact on how we live our life. Now, I saw some people that night in the, in the Show Me Center, and they had hard hats on. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a lot like some Christians I know real well. <laughs> we say, yes, I believe the earthquake's going to come, but I'm not going to really change my life. I think I'll just wear a hard hat in the Show Me Center. And if it falls, you know, maybe. Well, that, that's kind of, I think we can relate to that, can't we? We, we say, well, I believe it's all going to happen, but I'm going to kind of live in the present anyway, and I'll, for a little safety's sake, I'll wear my hard hat. That's not enough. That's not obedience to the book of Revelation. To be obedient to prophecy, I need to act in a consistent manner with what God says about tomorrow. And you might just ask yourself right now whether you're being obedient to prophecy. Can those around you tell by the way you live that you believe that Jesus is coming back? Is it evident by the way you live your life that you believe that Jesus could come back today? Is it evident by the way you live your life that you really believe that this world is going to be destroyed by fire? That you really believe that everything around you is going to be gone? Do you believe that and do you live that way? Is it evident by the way you live your life that your home is in heaven rather than here on earth? Our response to Revelation is to be obedience. There's a second injunction given here, and that's in verses 8 to 9, and that is to worship. Notice verse 8. And I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And this is the second time John has made this mistake. He made it back in, in chapter 19 and verse 10. And here he was so overwhelmed by all that he had heard and seen that he instinctively fell down to worship the angel who had shown him. He mistook the messenger for the one who sent the message. You know, I wish sometimes people would do that with me. I wish that sometimes people would would confuse me with the one who sent me. Not because I want somebody to worship me, but because I would like to reflect the glory of God in such a way that I, as the messenger, remind people of the message giver. But you know, it also tells me here that as John falls down twice to worship this angel, it tells me if this angel had that kind of glory, just imagine what the message giver must have. If John can, in response to this message and all that's happening to him, fall down before the messenger, this angel, what kind of God must we have 
in all his glory. And of course, as John falls down, he's immediately reprimanded, and the angel says, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant, and then he gives the command at the end of verse 9, he says, worship God. Now, if Revelation has taught us one thing, it is that God is to be worshipped. We've seen the elders worshiping. We've seen the four living creatures worshiping. We've seen the angels worshiping. We've seen the martyrs worshiping. We've seen the great multitude worshiping. We've seen every created thing worshiping. Every time we see the throne of God, we see all those around it bowing down before him, giving blessing and honor and glory and praise to him. God is to be worshiped. And you know, when I am not worshiping God... I am out of sync with heaven. When I'm not worshiping God, I'm really out of sync with the universe. When I'm not worshiping God, I'm out of sync with what God created me to do. And I'm out of sync with my eternal purpose because that's what I'm going to be doing for eternity. And as I read through the book of Revelation and I get to the end, the second injunction is that I am to worship God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have seen him from a new angle. We have seen him from new perspectives. We have seen him in all his glory. And what is our response? We should fall down with all those who are before the throne of God in heaven and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's a third injunction given here, and that is that we are to proclaim. Notice verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Do not seal it up. Now, to seal something meant to close it and to keep the contents away from people. Remember when Daniel was put into the lion's den. The king put the stone over the lion's den and he sealed it. And the seal meant that no one could tamper with that. No one could open it. No one could take Daniel out. No one could, could, could get into that. Uh, when Christ was put into the tomb, the stone was put there and it was sealed, meaning that no one could tamper with that. In fact, if you, if you take your Bible, it's interesting to go back to Daniel chapter 12 because there's a parallel in Daniel. Daniel is really the revelation of the Old Testament. It has prophecies which parallel many of those in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting what Daniel is told at the end of his book. Daniel chapter 12. And verse 4. <clears throat> says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now Daniel writes his prophecy... And God speaks to him and says, seal it up. In fact, if you come down to verse 8 of chapter 12, it says, As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these? Daniel wrote this prophecy and he didn't understand it. And he said, Lord, I don't understand. Tell me what it means. And verse 9, and he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. The book of Daniel was written long ago, about the 5th, 6th century B.C., but it was sealed. 
Daniel couldn't understand it. It wasn't really for his generation. It was for those in the end time. It was written for us. And Revelation is written, and you get to the end, and John is told not to seal it up. He gets an entirely different message. Why? Because the time is near. What's that tell us? It tells us that Revelation is an open book. And I'm afraid that too many Christians and too many churches and too many preachers today treat it like it's a sealed book. And they say, well, I don't preach on Revelation because it's too controversial. I don't really read Revelation because it's, you know, I don't understand it. And we sort of leave it over there at the side like it's a sealed up book. Revelation is an open book. It's a message that needs to be heard. It's a message for our day. It's a message that we are to proclaim. It's open. It meets the needs of our generation. Since we started this book, we have gone from unparalleled peace to unparalleled war, and now we're back at peace again. If ever there's a time when people will listen to what God has to say about the future, it's in our day. People ask me, I run into people all the time, they say to me, when I, they find out I'm a preacher, they say, well, what do you think is going to happen in the future? What, what do you think about what's going on in the Middle East? This is a per- perfect opportunity for us to take the messages that God has given about the future and preach the gospel to people. We're to proclaim it. It's an open book. And then verse 11 reminds us of the magnitude of the eternal consequences of this message. Notice verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What's that saying? Well, it's saying that when the time is up and when Christ returns, a man's character becomes fixed. You see, right now, it's an open book because the time is near. And people have the opportunity to respond to the message. But when Jesus comes back, that time is going to be over. And the unjust and the filthy will always be unjust and filthy. And the righteous and the holy will always be righteous and holy. A man's character is going to become fixed at that point. And we have the message that makes the eternal difference between whether man's character is fixed in ungodliness or in righteousness. And that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're to proclaim that message during this age. And so as we consider how to respond to the prophetic message of the book of Revelation, there are the injunctions. There are three. We're to obey God, we're to worship God, and we are to proclaim His message. And then just to help us with that response, He gives us some incentives in verses 12 to 19. Three incentives appear in these verses that encourage us to give the proper response to the Lord. They are these. Christ's coming, Christ's character, and Christ's word. First of all, Christ's coming. That's verses 12 to 15. Why should I obey and worship and proclaim this message given in the book of Revelation? Well, it's because Christ is coming. Notice verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to bring three things in relation to man. The first is rewards, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me 
to render to every man according to what he has done. Christ's coming is going to be a time of reward. Now, rewards are totally separate from salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's not based on anything we do. Rewards are based on deeds. And you don't want to confuse these two. When Christ comes back, there's going to be a time of rewards for Christians. I believe that time is going to take place while the tribulation is occurring here on earth. In heaven, we're going to have what's called in Scripture the great, or, I'm sorry, the, the judgment seat of Christ occurring. That's going to be a time of rewards in heaven for Christians. And I'm not, I don't want to get into details about rewards. I don't want to go into a whole lot of that. In fact, uh, if all goes according to plan, we're going to go into the book of 2 Corinthians after this. And the Second Corinthians, uh, Corinthians covers the judgment seat of Christ. And so we'll go into that in detail at that time. But simply mark this, the fact that when Christ comes, he is going to bring rewards. And if you notice this verse carefully, you'll see that re rewards are not based upon your gift. Rewards are not based upon your talents. Rewards are not based upon your intentions. Rewards are based upon what you do. And that should be an incentive to us to obey the Lord. Because when he comes back, I want to hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's an incentive for me. And then a second thing will occur when Christ comes back. He will bring with him full salvation. Notice verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Christ's coming will also be a time of complete salvation, complete blessing. We will enter into the city through the gates. We will have the right to the tree of life. Now I want you to notice something from that verse. Who gets the right to the city and the tree of life? Well, it's those who wash their robes. Interesting contrast. Rewards are based on deeds. Salvation is based on clothes. What you're wearing. And that's consistent throughout Scripture. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus told a story about the king who had a wedding feast. And he went out to, to hold this wedding feast for his son and he sent his servants out to bring in the invited guests. And the invited guests refused. And so he told his servants to go out into the highways and the byways and just invite whoever you will and let them come. Invite the good and the evil, whoever, let them come. And so they all came to this wedding feast. And then it says the king came into the wedding feast. And he saw a man there who didn't have a wedding garment on. And that man was thrown out of the wedding feast. Now, it wasn't based on deeds because he said, go out and get anybody who's good or evil. It doesn't matter. Bring them all in. But when they got there, they had to have the right clothes on. Salvation is based on what you wear. Back in Isaiah chapter 64, it says, all our righteousness is as a filthy garment. We can't come to God in our righteousness because our righteousness is just filthy apparel. It does not meet God's conditions. You say, well, how do I get my clothes clean? Well, that's what he says here. He says, you have to wash your robe. You say, how do I wash my robe? Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14 tells you that. 
Revelation 7, 14. And he said to him, My Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that good? How do you get your, your uh, robe washed? You wash it, and it becomes white in the blood of the Lamb. The only cleansing agent that can take away sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when Christ comes back, He's going to bring full salvation, and He's going to bring it to those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And then there's a third thing that Christ will bring with Him in verse 15, and that's judgment. That's a sober verse. He said, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Christ's coming will be a time of final judgment as well. When we talked about dogs here, uh, that's, a, that's a phrase that's a very derogatory phrase in that time because a dog was not a pet in that day. A dog was sort of a mongrel that ran around in packs and was very... Uh, despicable to people, and this term is only used in Scripture of false teachers. They're called dogs. Philippians 3.2 is an example of that. And so he talks about these people, and he, he's not even really, the issue is not here the fact that, that somebody has committed these crimes or these sins. The idea here is that this is their settled character. This is their settled character that they've never been delivered from, even though God's grace has provided that deliverance. Jesus went to the cross and he died for all men. He died for the sins of the world. That, that grace has provided the sacrifice to deliver us from our sins and to change us into conformity with Christ. And those who reject that will be stuck forever in that character. And so judgment will come when Christ returns. And so our, our first incentive is Christ's coming by which he will bring rewards, complete salvation, and final judgment. And then there's a second incentive, and that is Christ's character. And we see that in verse 13 and also in verse 16. Notice verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, those are all phrases we've seen before in the book of Revelation. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. He's saying, I am the A and the Z. I'm the first and the last. I'm beginning and I'm the end. In other words, everything starts with me and everything ends with me. What's he saying? He's simply saying, I am the infinite, eternal God. I am the A to Z, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, and everything in between. I'm the eternal God. That's his character. And then look down at verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root of and the offspring of David. I am the root and the offspring of David. You say, well, how can he be the root and the branch of the same tree? Well, he is the, the branch or the offspring of David. That's his humanity. He came from David. But he's also the root of David, which is his deity. And that's the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus. He is the God-man. He is the offspring of David in his humanity. He is the root of David in his deity. I not only came from David, David came from me. And the only one who can say that is the Lord Jesus because he is the God-man. 
And then he says something else about himself in, in the way of a title at the end of verse 16. He says, I am the bright and morning star. Jesus is the morning star whose coming will herald the dawn of a new day. He's the one who will come, and he is called the bright and morning star because when he comes, his brightness is going to outshine the sun. And Revelation 21, 23 informs us we'll no longer need the sun when the Lord Jesus is here in the eternal state because he will outshine the sun. He is the bright and morning star. And so our second incentive is Christ's character. He's the eternal God, still fully God and fully man. He will be that way throughout eternity. And he's the one whose glory will outshine the sun and who will usher in an eternal day. And then there's a third incentive, and that's Christ's word. Why should I respond to Revelation? Because it's Christ's word. See the end, beginning of verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. This, this message is personal. Jesus says, it's me. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. It's a personal message from Jesus Christ to us. That's why we ought to respond. And not only is it a personal message, but it's a permanent message. If you jump down to verses 18 and 19, we're given a very stern warning there. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. This is the word of Christ and it's not to be tampered with. We don't have the option of adding and deleting. We don't have the option of editing Christ's message. It is our place to simply hear and respond. Now when it says in verse 19 that Christ will take away his part from the tree of life, that doesn't mean that God will take salvation from someone who has it. That's not what he's saying here. What he's doing is he's using the same terminology he already used earlier in verse 19. He says, if you take away from this book, then I will take away from you. If you add, I'll add. That's the idea. He's just using the same terminology. If you add words, I'll add words, the plagues from this book. If you take away words, I'll take away words, all the promises of this book, of this book the tree of life and the right to the city. And what he's doing here is he's simply making the assumption that a child of God will not tamper with God's word. And that's a fair assumption. Somebody who's a true child of God is not going to corrupt the word of God. Because as a believer, you're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of God. You're washed by the cleansing of the word. You're regenerated by the word. You're sanctified by the word. You're guided by the word. You're fed by the word, why would you want to mutilate the word of God? Anyone who would add to or take away from the word is not a true believer in Jesus Christ. And I may not understand it all, and I may misinterpret it sometimes, and I may not be able to get all the way down to the, the depths of this word. In fact, most of the time I feel like I'm skimming across the top of the word of God. And I may not know all its mysteries, 
But I can tell you one thing, and that is that I love every word in this book. And that's the response of a true believer, because this is Christ's message to me. It's his message of grace to each one of us. It's the word of Christ. And so there are the incentives for a proper response. Christ's coming, Christ's character, and Christ's word. And then there's a final point here, and that is the invitations. And we're going to have to go through them quickly, but in verse 17 we see the invitations, and there are two. There's the invitation to Christ and the invitation from Christ. First, the invitation to Christ, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. That invitation comes from the Spirit and from the bride, which is the church. The church indwelt by the Spirit of God. Our invitation to Christ is, come. The whole book of Revelation tells us about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and our response and in, in invitation to him is, come, Lord Jesus. That's our response. You say, well, why would the Spirit be saying come? Well, you know, when you think about the Spirit of God, when, when Christ left, the Spirit came and indwelt us, and the Spirit goes through all the persecutions that the church goes through, and the Spirit has to go through being quenched by sin and being grieved by sin. The, the Holy Spirit has made his residence in the, this world, and, and the Holy Spirit is looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back because all the sin is going to be taken away. And the Holy Spirit is saying come because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to make us, the church, complete. And that's going to be the fulfillment of his ministry. And so he says, come. And when you think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is going to be ultimately glorified is when he comes back. And so the Spirit of God is saying, come. The last time the world saw him, he was hanging on a cross between two criminals. The next time he's seen, he will be seen in all his glory. And so the Holy Spirit says, come. Why does the church say come? If you don't know the answer to that question, then you're not par probably part of the church. Because if you're a true believer, your heart's got to be saying, come Lord Jesus. That's the response of every believer because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's our invitation to Christ. And then in, in the rest of verse 17, we see the invitation by Christ. It says, And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. You know, it's exciting to me that at the conclusion of the last book in the Bible, on the final pages and the final verses of the volume of Scripture, God is still giving his invitation. And Christ says, If anyone hears, say come. You know, if you're not part of the church and you're not presently saying, come Lord Jesus, but you're hearing the message of the book of Revelation, you can join in and say come as well. You can join in with this group of people who are believers and say come to the Lord Jesus. The only condition is you have to hear his voice. And then he gives another invitation in segment. He says, if anyone is thirsty, come. And he switches there from saying come to coming. Because before you can say come to the Lord Jesus, you first have to come to the Lord Jesus. And the only condition there is that you have to be thirsty. Are you parched in your soul? Are you thirsty inside? Thirsty for love and reality and purpose and peace 
The Lord Jesus says, come to me, and I'll fulfill that. And then he gives another segment of invitation when he says, let the one who wishes take of the water of life. You don't have to wait until you get to that new Jerusalem to get the water of life that comes out of the throne. It's available to you now. I have eternal life right now. That's something I possess right now. In fact, I'll never die. You say, well, come on, you're going to die. No, I'll never die. This body will keel over, but I will never die. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall what? Never die. No death. This body's going to drop off, but I will never die. I have eternal life. That's a quantity of life and a quality of life. Not only is it quantity, but I have the quality of the, of, the, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in me. Love, joy, peace, all those qualities in life. They're yours if you want them. And the only condition is whosoever wishes. Whosoever wills. The responsibility is yours. The condition lies with you. Do you want love? You can have it. Do you want peace? You can have it. Do you want heaven? You can have it. It's in Jesus. And the condition lies with you. And if you mark the end of that verse, it's a gift without cost. That's Christ's invitation to you. If you hear him, you can join those who are saying, come. If you're thirsty, you can come. If you wish, you can drink from the water of life without cost. That's a beautiful invitation. We've seen the glory of Christ. We've seen the judgment of Christ in this book, and he's been awesome in, it, in our vision of him through the eyes of John. And here at the close of this book, we see the compassion of Jesus coming out again, and he's saying, come if you're thirsty. You can come and drink from the water of life, and that's beautiful. But this invitation is not timeless. If you go down to verse 20, he says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. He makes that statement three times in this passage. In verse 7, he says, I'm coming. Verse 12, I'm coming. Verse 20, I'm coming. You don't have forever to respond because Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, the time will be up. And then John responds on behalf of us all.